Welcome to uh, episode 17 of The Professor and the Hack, in which we discuss uh, the world of Australian politics with the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Hello, Peter. G'day, Hugh. You've been avoiding me. It's been too long. It seems too long. What have you been doing? Well, two weeks of Parliament. Everybody got the impression that they're back into it now. You know, they've had the election. They had a very brief sitting, obviously, to pass the tax cuts and then a bit of a hiatus as everyone recovered from the election. And I thought, yep, here we are, two weeks of sittings. They're right back into it till the end of the year. And then the Bureau in Canberra reminded me that uh, at the end of that two weeks, they've now just taken a winter recess. So we're not going to see Parliament again until September. They work hard, don't they? <laughs> in fair, And you know this. I know, I know you're joking. But in fairness, we, we all bash them when they don't sit often. But they are working, well, at least the good ones, are working in their electorates back in their home states. I wouldn't want to be a politician uh, with all that meeting and greeting and uh, and constituency work that most of them do. But I don't know whether the safe seat MPs do quite as much of it as the marginal seat MPs if self-interest is dictated. I was worried there for a minute because I thought you'd got Stockholm Syndrome. You are going to start <laughs> a, a line about how hard all the politicians work. It, it's It's relevant because... There was something that got really picked up. It was a throwaway line from Scott Morrison in Question Time. He was he took the first question from Anthony Albanese. This was on the 31st of July, so a few days back. Mm. And he used it as an opportunity to launch into tax and the tax cuts, which is you pointed out back at the time of the budget in April, seems like a million years ago, disproportionately benefits over time those earning over $200,000, the percentage tax reductions, so not the cash dollar reductions, mm. the percentage cash reductions um, are better if you're earning over $200,000 and if you're lower down. Unusually so. Unusually so. It is, I believe, they call it a regressive tax structure. And this is how Scott Morrison justified that process in question time. So the harder they work, the more they earn, the more they keep of what they earn, Mr Speaker. That's what we promised to the Australian people and that's what we delivered and the Labor Party sought to oppose us every single step of the way, Mr Speaker. So there's a couple of things to pick up there. Uh, one is that he's arguing that the harder that an Australian works, the more they earn. And so therefore on these tax cuts that disproportionately benefit those over $200,000, the more they get to keep what they earn. And it's been quite remarkable what the response has been to that simple first sentence People have pointed out you can be a registered nurse and work as hard as you like. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're never going to earn it. This is a common mistake that very well-paid people make in their own little bubble, if I can use the Prime Minister's term. He likes to talk about the Canberra bubble. Well, in his own little bubble, earning half a million a year or thereabouts as as PM, he forgets that I I would – I mean, let me just speak from personal experience. When I worked as a storeman and packer, casually while at university for some money on the side or as a waiter, which I did after that period in time, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life. I mean, maybe not as long, maybe not with as many balls in the air that you're juggling and things, you know, on your mind, but, oh, my God, you know, at the end of every day, my feet or my hands, I was exhausted uh, and I was on minimum wage in both yes. roles. So, I think many people have that experience as a, as a student. Absolutely. Myself, I had a job for a, for a brief unhappy period as a, as a uh, well, as a labourer. There was no other way to describe it, shifting a lot of rubble and stuff around. And this was, this was the time of shovel and wheelbarrow and it bloody nearly killed me. And, and minimum wage was exactly what it was. 
And I remember at the time, whether it was in the warehouse or in the waitering, full-time people working in there, uh, trying to get extra hours, doing overtime, by the way, with Fair Work Commission uh, cuts to overtime potentially and penalty rates, uh, wanting to you know make a bit more. Now, they're making more. Good luck to them. And in the broader sense, that's fitting into the commentary of Scott Morrison, but they're not getting up to that upper echelon that he's giving these massive tax cuts to. So, yeah, sure, you work hard, you can build more wealth potentially, but let's not assume that somebody who's earning two or $300,000 is working harder than somebody who's earning a lot less than that. I mean, usually it's quite the opposite. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about it is that is that it was offered up almost as the as a fundamental philosophy for the Morrison age. Uh, if you work harder, you earn more. Well, that seems reasonable. Uh, but that the rewards come when you when you crack those big numbers. The real rewards come when you crack those big numbers. And um, there's a lot of people not earning those big numbers and, a lot and of they pe- are his voter base. Oh, yeah, and a lot of people that, by the way, it's not about earning more money. I mean, for example, you know, okay, fine, you become a corporate lawyer, you earn a huge quantum every year. A lot of people choose to become legal aid lawyers or, or work in some type of, you know, social policy sphere with legal with legal assistance, which doesn't provide the same level of income if you go off and work in corporate land. It doesn't mean they're working less hard. Uh, it's not about the money for them. It's about the job satisfaction. And that's not to say people in corporate don't have the same thing, but they just also happen to make a lot of money on the way through. Yeah, it's interesting because we're all kind of trying to get a feel for what is a Morrison prime ministership all about. It was thought to be a temporary one that was going to lead up to an election which the Liberal Party or the Coalition would Mm. lose as a consequence of all the bloodletting. It was Tom Gleeson that described him as like the, uh, what did he say, like the relief school teacher. You know you can muck up because he's not going to be there for long. Well, that turned out not to be the case. He could be there for quite a while. So (laughs) so let's try and figure out what is the... I'm one to talk, by the way, with my prediction. (laughs) Is that... We'll we'll let you off the hook with that one eventually. But the... um, Because this is the Morrison age. And it's interesting that that statement differs so much from what uh, Malcolm Turnbull said, where he said, I've earned a lot of money, but I've never worked as hard as a taxi driver Mm. or a cleaner who worked extremely hard and will never make money. So... uh, Turnbull, not a man known for his humility, uh, at least struck a chord there when he recognised that people who weren't making a lot of money did work really hard. And even the other predecessor to Scott Morrison as Prime Minister was um, Tony Abbott. Mm. And he would uh, contribute a lot back into the community. Uh, Not everyone loves Tony Abbott. Some people adore Tony Abbott. But no one can deny that he would give back unpaid volunteer effort uh, both as a surf lifesaver and also as a as a fire volunteer, bushfire volunteer. And so that concept of what it is to work and what it is to give, which essentially which takes what you earn away from the effort that you're putting in and the good that you're doing to a community, both in their different ways. Turnbull and Abbott had something to say about that. But it's a different thing to what Scott Morrison says because he is framing it as the harder you work, the more you earn. I wonder whether that's going to be an issue for him. People have picked up on the Pentecostal, Pentecostal uh, prosperity gospel and all this sort of stuff that's going in. I don't know what you make of that if we're talking too much too soon about that. But people are picking up and wondering if this is maybe what he's about. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that in it. He's, he's trying to emulate Howard aspirationalism, but he just needs to make sure he gets the tone right. He's got a good backstory. I was thinking about this as you were talking just then because – 
he, yes, he grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs, but his father was a cop. You know, he, he didn't sort of – he went to Sydney Boys High, which had all the benefits of the sort of GPS elite school system. However, it was a public – It's a selective school a selective for, the, for bright school. kids. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he's, he's an interesting mix. Uh, but then, as you say, you've got that Pentecostal attitude that I think probably dovetails a little bit with – his admiration of Howard and the concept of the Howard battlers whom he wants to appeal to. So he's trying to bring all of these things together, I think, and it's a delicate dance. It's one that he managed to achieve through the election, but that victory was less about all of that and more about him as the raw politician with the professional political background as a state director smashing up Bill Shorten and scaring the bejesus, not necessarily wrongly, but scaring the bejesus out of everyone about what Labor was offering, this is a more delicate dance. Uh, And what I think makes it really interesting to watch, I don't know what you think about this, is doing it vis-a-vis Anthony Albanese. That's a different ballgame to Bill Shorten. Because Albanese is genuinely from tough background? I think so. I mean, look, Anthony Albanese will go one of two ways, won't he? I mean, look, let's start with Bill Shorten. Bill Shorten, whatever his story, he seemed confected in his rhetoric. Uh, We all thought he was going to win anyway, but he always was a bit confected, fairly or unfairly. He did go to an elite school, um, notwithstanding, you know, his sort of personal story. But Anthony Albanese, he's either going to be a hard warrior of the left, you know, he has previously talked about how he loves bashing up Tories, rhetorically, obviously, (laughs) Um, but he's also got an interesting backstory to be able to appeal to aspirational voters because, you know, he's, he was raised by a single mother uh, in housing commission. You know, he's, he's the guy from that background made good as long as he doesn't then get typecast as being all about that background rather than about the aspiration that goes with it, I think. Because he seems determined not to become a social justice warrior from the mean streets. Even though he always has been. <laughs> he always has been, but he seems very keen at mm. the moment to to neutralise all of that. There's, uh, I want to get on to um, Albo and what his options are in just a second, but if I take the second part of that grab at question time, which I for some reason <laughs> have come to convince myself is somewhat revealing, he, he says about these tax cuts that... Uh, the full tranche of the tax cuts. That's what we promised to the Australian people and that's what we delivered. And the Labor Party sought to oppose this every single step of the way, Mr Speaker. The reality of it is is that Labor waved it through. They did. And that is a lesson, surely, for the Labor Party about the dangers of voting for policy that you don't like to get it out of the way because you get no credit from the government for doing it. You still, you know, there's the Prime Minister in Parliament saying they opposed this every step of the way and they didn't. But he would say that, wouldn't he? I mean, I I, I don't disagree. Well, it's dishonest, surely, because they didn't. Are you falling backwards surprised that politicians have been a little bit dishonest? (laughs) No, but I'm falling backwards when you think that Labor was Labor naive to think Mm. that somehow it was going to win points for bipartisanship on tax when the vote is still warm, the ink still barely dry, and already the history is being rewritten into a story about how Labor... uh, 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 
is being accused of essentially being the tax a lot party. It remains to be seen, though, doesn't it, where the voters land on this. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's a risk for Labor because we've already seen commentators, I've said it myself, accusing them in different policy spheres of flip-flopping. Rhetoric on the way through about concerns about everything from tax cuts to national security measures, but then ultimately when they're given a black and white choice, you either pass them as is or you block them because of your concerns around the trimmings. They've passed them. They get accused of flip-flopping by the government on this example with the tax cuts. They get accused of opposing them every step of the way. Now, they didn't. They passed them in the end, as you point out. I think their hope, though, is that, yeah, sure, the PM and his team will accuse us of opposing this every step of the way, but voters will know that ultimately we pass them, or at least enough voters will know. Now, that's a delicate dance as well. That may not be the case because the relentlessness of the messaging from the government that they oppose them every step of the way could be what bites. Peter Costello used to do this very well against Kim Beasley and others during the Howard Costello years. He would mock them in Parliament. You disliked you know, policy X or policy Y so much that you ended up coming in here and voting for it. Yeah. So he, he didn't go the opposition approach. He then mocked them. Uh, and, you know, much to the enjoyment of, of the backbench, I recall at the time. So Labor's hope, I think, is just simply that voters will realise, okay, they ended up passing them even though they had some concerns because they don't want yeah, to be seen but, to be but, but it does mean that all nuance is lost and eventually there will be another election campaign and tax is going to be part of what that is. And if Labor takes a position against tax cuts or says that the don't forget that the uh, t- the tax cuts for those on high incomes don't kick in until after the next election. So mm. this will still be very much a live issue at the next election, that they will be uh, hammered uh, either for opposing the tax cuts. Uh, or questions about whether they'll repeal them. Yeah, and, mm. but, but also saying, well, if, you, if they were so appalling, why did you vote for them? And that becomes something. And the nuance of the fact that they had to vote for them so that the lower income tax cuts could go through gets lost in that debate. I just wonder where that tactically whether it's going to work. I, I, I wonder too, but I think their theory, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with this tactic, but I think their theory behind the tactical approach that they've got is that they'll just neutralise tax as an issue at the next election. The government might say, oh, you oppose it every step of the way, but they'll say, well, actually we passed it. And the remaining tranche of tax cuts to come, we passed them too and they're sitting on the books Let's go talk about other things that they think are their their biggest strengths. We'll see. Okay, well, we've got Albo News Poll. We've got Chinese ports. We've got the US over here having a chat about what we're going to do about China. Angus Taylor under fire in question time. Let's take a quick break and get stuck into that in just a moment. Hi, I'm Georgia Love. And I'm Shira Taft. And we are the hosts of The Reality Bite this season, of course, talking about all things The Bachelor. It's cocktails and roses. It's Matt Agnew, the astrophysicist, trying to find love amongst beautiful girls from Australia who are throwing themselves at him. And we're going to be talking about it every week. Watch The Bachelor 7.30 Wednesdays and Thursdays and catch us on The Reality Bite. And ask for a rose. Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hack. Got myself a bit lost in there talking about precisely what it was that Scott Morrison was going on about in a single statement to uh, Parliament. Um, but uh, we've got a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on. Uh, Albo, you mentioned, I noticed one of the things he said, which is a really curious thing, turned up on Insiders and said, I've not seen any evidence of direct corruption that's been proven in my time and I've been in Parliament, uh, he has said, which raises the question, how hard is it going to go against all kinds of things that Labor have said in the past have been crook, uh, whether it's the $400 million plus that was handed off to this company Paladin about security, which the PNG government seems to think is corrupt because that's now investigating all of that. 
whether it's visas for au pairs, whether it's what's going on with Angus Taylor and his connections to some grasslands. Um, what's Albo up to, for heaven's sake? Here's what I think his strategy is on this, because he is trying to run these lines that I'm not going to be overtly partisan. I'm not going to cry wolf on corruption every step of the way. I'm not going to call on ministers to resign every week. It was Mark Dreyfus. Uh, I wrote an article about this years ago. He he, he calls on ministers to resign so often that it becomes white noise. I think what Albanese is trying to do here, whether it succeeds or not, it's another matter, of course. I think he's trying to amplify his voice of concern when he raises it by not doing it all the time. So I think he's looked at the shortened strategy or the way that, as I mentioned, someone like Dreyfus and others have acted, uh, or indeed the way oppositions have long acted, where they just punch daily. And they might win daily or they might get ahead in the polls for weeks or months at a time. I think he's trying to avoid that because he's worried that then come election time or get closer to an election, it can be white noise. You know, the the outrage meter is so high that the public just think, oh, yeah, you know, they're doing what they do. You're doing what you do. We switch off. We're all cynical. His theory is wave through policy, even if you raise some issues about it, don't go hard on resignations or accusations of lying, for example. That was a word that Bill Shorten used to always use, accusing the PM or the government of lying. Don't do that. And then corruption that you use as an example, Hugh, is just another one. I haven't seen overt examples. Stick to that, stick to that, stick to that. But then when you do decide to go for it, hope that you get listened to because you're the guy who doesn't just always say that. You're the guy who's actually more reasonable than that, so we better now listen. Now, I'm not saying it's going to work, but I think that's what he's strategy. So we've seen in question time so far a consistent line of attack against Angus Taylor about whether he had declared properly his interests uh, through an intermediary in a company that was involved allegedly in getting rid of endangered grasslands, other material that was going around there. If you're not making a case for corruption or at least saying what you you're investigating, what's the point of it? Well, maybe he's trying to build towards that. And then eventually they think that there's enough there. I think he's also just happy, by the way, to see Angus Taylor out in front in question time as part of a strategy where they won't necessarily get to the bottom of what's happened, but they think he's a weak performer and they think they can, you know, if you like, keep him front and centre the same way that they then flung across to Stuart Robert for a while. This idea of they hunt as a pack and hit the weaker ministers rather than just always asking the questions of the Treasurer and the Prime Minister. So you pick them off over time. Yeah, and, and you, you sort of expose... Because Labor has a theory, whether it's right or not, that its team is stronger than the coalition team. Now, that's certainly the way it looked ahead of the last election at one level because you had so many retirements from the government, you know, they were down in the polls, and then you looked at the Labor front bench, and even though the Rudd-Gillard years wasn't exactly a stiller era of, of Australian governance... There were a lot of faces there that had been senior ministers then, so you sort of thought, oh, they've got experience. So they, they did feel like there was that team contrast. And, of course, it was in Bill Shorten's interest to accentuate that because he wasn't personally popular, so he always had his team around him, whereas Scott Morrison was running a lone race because he puts his team around him and it just refers back to the August dysfunction of the leadership shift. I don't know that that's still the case, though, in voters' eyes. I mean, the government looks a bit stronger now. They've offloaded people that are, if you like, seen as part of the past, even if they were decent or half-decent performers. Uh, and the, it's important, I think, that Scott Morrison lets his team shine. But Labor is still in a mindset, rightly or wrongly, where they think that there's weak links in that team that they can pick off. And they've decided that Angus Taylor is one of them. And 
accentuating that, of course, is that he does have some of these conflicts on the way through, or at least perceived conflicts. The details of which we may less know less of, uh, thanks to the fact that Pauline Hanson was determined that there wouldn't be a Senate inquiry into it. That was extraordinary, I thought, uh, the, the way that she sort of positioned herself on that. Now, I, I far bit from me to understand what goes on in the mind of Pauline Hanson, but for me at least, it looks like Angus Taylor is part within the Liberal Party of the reactionary hard right, and in other words, the section of the Liberal Party that gets closest from time to time to One Nation, and he's an odd member of that, I have to say, but he did kind of join up to it. Um, so it, it looked a little bit to me at least like, you know, Pauline Hanson might have had more of an issue if that was Christopher Pine under pressure. Yeah, it's interesting though because it also is an indication of how difficult it is for Labor in the way that the parliament is configured, mm. the, the way the numbers fall, that if they think they've got some vulnerabilities in a minister, Angus Taylor being an obvious example, and they want to step it up to the next level and, and get the Senate to have a, you know, Hard just to, to put the blowtorch on them, they can't do it. So, you know, I remember very clearly in the days of the Gillard minority government how um, the coalition would go extremely hard, uh, matters of public importance, debates, you know, suspension of standing orders, debates going on every afternoon to try to get people to uh, uh, create in people's mind that sense of chaos in the government. And it worked mm. over time. That's That seems to be a tool Labor's not willing to use. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And, and it certainly worked. I mean, that was Tony Abbott's raison d'etre during that period was to make the government, the Gillard and Rudd governments, look dysfunctional whether they were or weren't. Uh, Bill Shorten tried to do the same thing uh, and he got so far but then he kind of got caught out by circumstances. Uh, I'm not really sure where ultimately Anthony Albanese is going to go. Other than this, I, I don't think we're going to see much, if anything, by way of policy from Labor well into this period in opposition. He needs to be careful with that though because we haven't had this for a while in this country but I can see an early election in this term because – our federal politicians like to have their elections generally at the end of the year, not at the start of the year. Uh, and I just think that there's going to be a shift uh, to an earlier election to sort of realign the Senate a little bit with coming back six, eight months later. I could imagine Scott Morrison going to the polls that little bit early. So Anthony Albanese wants to be ready for that. So that would be towards the end of 2021? Exactly. Rather than wait till 2022... Uh, snap election August or thereabouts, maybe in 2021. And if Labor hasn't got a, its act together but the government's ahead, uh, that, that's very John Howard-esque. I mean, yeah. he did that in 98. So, so what I'm getting the feeling here is that from Albanese, we're going to get a guy who is going to be light on for policy uh, and light on for attack. At least initially. So what does he stand for? Well, I think, and this is the passive nature, I think, of what he's doing. He's going to try to expose the odd little thing here and there in the government. But I think he's actually going to passively sit and see how the government goes. So in a sense, I think I wrote something to this effect the other week, what I see happening is, is a risky strategy for Albanese because in a sense he's letting the government rise or fall on its own competence. It's almost like he's decided... What happens if they turn out to be competent? Well, that's that's the risk, isn't it? If they turn out to be competent, then, then they just get re-elected because you've been unable to either provide an alternative or to bash them up. As, of course, as a political view, is that, you know, the, the horrors that the government might turn out to be competent, but... Uh, but, but it's an interesting one. It does give them room to be competent if you're not being pursued by a very active opposition. It does. And if they are competent enough, uh, then they get there, because 
if Labor decides it doesn't want to play opposition policy for opposition policy's sake, that enhances the capacity for the government to be competent. Equally, if Labor doesn't present massive policy alternatives, then that removes the need for voters to decide to chuck out the government because there's something better sitting there in the wings. Albanese, I think, takes the view that the government isn't going to be competent and left to their own devices rather than, for example, saved by Labor amendments to legislation uh, or Labor blocking legislation, don't save them from themselves. It's, it's a theory that dates back a little bit to what happened in the wake of, and not intentionally, but in the wake of Mark Latham losing the 04 election, because Howard controlled both houses, it didn't matter what the opposition did, he got his way. And by getting his way, the Australian people got work choices and then Labor had manna from heaven, politically speaking, to take them out. Very different circumstances, mm. but I think it's that concept. It, it, it is a Bradbury, a Bradbury-esque, not a Bradbury-esque. <laughs> you don't seem convinced. You don't seem well, convinced no. there's any hope of that working for Albo. Well, I can't see the strength in it. When you consider that uh, two-thirds of the population, 67% of the population, put their primary vote to someone other than the Labor Party, what the Labor Party has to do is to give people Get reasons to vote for them, uh, not simply you know, turn to them because they're a bit disgruntled with the government. And if you're letting the government look um, competent, and uh, this is just the pure politics, everyone wants a competent government for Australia. Mm. Uh, But if you're letting them be competent, appear to be competent, then there's no road to any kind of victory or even effectively to hold the ground that they've got. It would seem to me for Labor, unless at some stage they wake themselves up and decide what they stand for and, uh, and then make some, you know, some, put some vigour and some rigour around that that concept. I think part of it is that they are, they are genuinely trying to work out what they stand for. I mean, they look at, the, we've talked about this before, but they look at that vote up in Queensland, you know, a 27% primary vote in Queensland and then underperforming in Victoria, which is a massive growth state and a Labor-leaning state, yet they didn't get to where they needed to with a Victorian leader. Uh, and now you've got Albanese from New South Wales. He doesn't tick the Queensland box. He doesn't fix things in Victoria that could have been better for them. So they're trying to work out how do we do this because it's hard for them to maintain those southern state supporters that they want to maintain but also get back Queensland. I mean, 27% primary vote up in Mm. Queensland, my God. It does, as we we said after the election, that there's a very good chance that Scott Morrison could be there for uh, a good deal of time. To which end, news poll has come out. He's got a lift after the election. Uh, It is, in fact, the first news poll that shows the coalition actually ahead, beyond 50-50, which is the best it had been since September back in 2016, Mm. just after Turnbull had won the election. So you've got to go back into the first half of 2016 before you see the coalition looking as well-placed as it is right now. Um, Scott Morrison must be feeling pretty good about himself. I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I'd want the polls on my side after the last three years <laughs> and Bill Shorten, would you? I, I mean, I suppose it's better than not. But well, it does, it does suggest that those polls are consistently <laughs> underplayed, the lab, uh, underplayed the Liberal Party vote, the coalition vote. Yeah, or, or Scott Morrison came roaring back, you know, who knows. But it, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm certainly not having a go at news poll. I write for The Australian. I wouldn't do that at the best of times. But... All polling agencies are now sort of slowly creeping out of their cave, aren't they? You know, they've let enough time pass. They hope uh, that they can kind of come out and see the light and and start doing a few polls. I don't think we're going to see as many polls um, as we had in previous terms just because of the supposed taint of the polls. I actually don't think the polls are as wrong as a lot of people think. I just think that 
the shift happened and the late deciding voters happened and then the polls therefore flipped at the last minute on the actual vote. Now, sure, even exit polls didn't get it right and that's, I guess, the caveat to that. Maybe there's a slight phenomena there that people don't want to say that they vote conservative when polled because there's an almost what dinner party stigma in some corners of society about that. I don't know. Uh, what I do think is interesting, though, is Australians like to give their politicians the benefit of the doubt. So even though Malcolm Turnbull scraped home in 2016, he got a brief reprieve in the polls straight after it, but it went away very quickly because of the dysfunctional nature of how badly he did by losing so many seats. I don't think we'll see that with Scott Morrison. You know, Australians want to reinforce the decision to have elected Scott Morrison. So his personal numbers were high. His preferred PM numbers were high. Uh, the primary vote for the coalition wasn't as high as it should be, but it was okay. And, of course, the two-party vote was very good. Uh, I don't see that fading as quickly as it did with Malcolm Turnbull v Bill Shorten, partly because of what we've talked about with the approach that Anthony Albanese has taken, but also uh, because I just think that he's won with enough personal, um, if you like, dominance and authority that he will be able to kick along. Uh, and then he probably has a style that unless, you know, some of this tax talk takes him away from the mainstream, he's got a better capacity to interact with marginal seed voters than Malcolm Turnbull ever did. Quick couple of uh, issues, uh, your answer in 10 seconds or less, <laughs> written on the back of an envelope. Uh, we've had Mike Pompeo, the US Secretary of State, visiting Australia uh, China uh, is very much in people's minds. There's a really interesting thing going on with Bougainville, mm. which is about to have a, um, an independence vote. China is looking to drop money there to help the Bougainvillians break free from Papua New Guinea with an eye towards them getting themselves established, yet another foothold potentially in our region. Uh, how much do you think, if you look at the policy landscape ahead, the foreign policy landscape, the whole business of the China-US game and our region, how much is that going to loom for Scott Morrison and this government? I think it's going to be a huge challenge and interesting um, because the trade arrangements with China and the growing importance of that vis-a-vis -vis the enduring US-Australia alliance and our democratic shared values. I mean, let's face it, China, China is not a democracy. It's not even close. Uh, it is an authoritarian dictatorship. Uh, and, yeah, the world needs them in, a, in an economic sense, but... They are a dark, dark, dark cloud on the world and they are growing in strength and they have zero respect for the rule of law, for democratic processes or indeed for things like a free press. And I, I'm, uh, yeah, I know that the modern integrated globalised economy doesn't work this way, but I tell you what, I'd be drawn to the banner of a politician who was arguing in terms of Western democratic values, that we need an iron curtain to descend against China, it's probably Dear too. Me. It's probably too late for that now. The, well, the also, the iron curtain is made of our iron, so <laughs> well, um, that, the, that would damage our economy well, enormously. Well, it would, but I just feel like it's them versus us. I'm pretty hardcore when it comes to China. I mean, you know, what we do is predicated on a country being democratic. You know, you and I'd probably be in jail if we tried to do anything like what we do and if we lived in China. No I've got no time for China and I never have. Well, there you go. Um, I might not travel there anytime soon. That, well, I've travelled a fair <laughs> bit there, but uh, you know, my opinions can wait for another time on that one. Also, Gama, all the spectacle there of, a, of an a, enormous important gathering and everyone talking about the voice for Indigenous people in the Constitution or how that structure is Where do you think going it's going to land? 
Well, it's it's. I think it's fairly plain from what Scott Morrison has said that it won't be what emerged from the statement of the heart, mm. yeah. from the heart um, about having a a voice on legislation that's going to affect uh, Indigenous people, First Nations people in Australia. And if it's not that, what is it? Uh, so I think there's enormous disappointment ahead. Uh, tough for Ken Wyatt, isn't it? Tough for Ken Wyatt. But I also wonder whether um, this is going to be another one of those things which will sit rather like the apology for John Howard. It gets over time more difficult for Scott Morrison uh, to to make some positive change. His conservatism will encourage him not to make any positive change and and therefore over time, and that's doubtless, I suspect, overall a popular, you know, pretty much in line with mainstream opinion, but over time it may start to work against him. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's not going to be something solved during his prime ministership, I'm starting to think. Yeah, and that's a shame because we need to move this whole beast along in some ways. And, mm. uh, treaty. <clears throat> anyway, that's enough of that. Um, <laughs> Given that uh, next year will mark 180 years since New Zealand managed to get a treaty with the indigenous Maori people of yep. New Zealand, we're only 180 years behind the Kiwis and not even at the starting line, so it's a little bit disappointing. But that's enough for now. Have a great week. Enjoy it. Great to talk to you, Peter, as always. Talk next week. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.